Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. There's going to be a long-term problem in this region uh, in which we have to build uh, and, and, and partner with countries that are committed to our interests, our values, uh, and, uh, and at the same time, we have immediate problems with terrorist organizations that uh, may be advancing. And rather than try to play whack-a-mole wherever these terrorist organizations may pop up, what we have to do is to be able to build effective partnerships. President Barack Obama on what America will not do in the Middle East. Later, we'll hear from Washington about how U.S. foreign policy is reacting to the crisis in Iraq. And from Brazil, the dog that didn't bark during the World Cup so far, all that social unrest we were warned about. But we begin here in Europe, where European Union leaders will meet this week to choose the next president of the European Commission. All the signs are that it'll be former Luxembourg Prime Minister Jean-Claude Juncker, despite David Cameron's warning that the appointment could drive Britain out of the European Union. Mr Cameron says that he'll demand a vote on the issue, breaking the tradition of filling top positions in the EU by consensus. I'm joined on the line now by the Irish Times European correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, is Jean-Claude Juncker's appointment a done deal? Well, it appears at this stage it is. Um, there's been a real turn in the last week or so. Um, there had been a lot of debate about the issue, but it now seems that um, the, the majority of com- countries have put their support behind Jean-Claude Juncker. In a sense, a lot of people suspect just following the lead of, of Germany and Angela Merkel. Um, so we do expect that he will be nominated as president uh, later this week in Brussels. And if it does go to a vote, how much support is David Cameron likely to get? Well, this is the thing. He's what his strategy is. He said he wants uh, other countries to stand up and be counted. He said that in private, he's got assurances from countries um, that, that they are also opposed to Juncker. But um, it's unlikely that many of them will actually come out and back him. Hungary, perhaps, would be one of the definites. But apart from that, other countries, for example, Italy, Italy was considered as one country that, that might support Britain on this. But last week we saw a, a change by, by Renzi, and they are likely to support Juncker, both in exchange for maybe some, uh, some shift in, in European policy, economic policy, as a kind of condition, if you like, of supporting Juncker. And now the Social Democrats initially wanted their leading candidate or Spitzenkandidat in the European elections, Martin Schulz, to get a job in the Commission as well. Mm. But he's not getting one, is he? It seems to be again a change of this. There was a lot of talk about Martin Schulz perhaps being the German Commissioner, but now it looks like he may return as the President of the European Parliament. Uh, this was one of, of the issues that were discussed in Paris last weekend um, when President Hollande hosted uh, a range of leaders from the centre-left uh, governments around Europe. So now it looks like uh, Martin Schulz um, may, may return as, as head of the, of the European Parliament. So there are two other big jobs in Europe that are going this year. One is the uh, Herman van Rompuy's job, President of the European Council, and the other is Catherine Ashton's job as the EU Foreign Policy Chief. Mm. Who are we expecting to get them? Yeah, this, is, this is another issue that's kind of changing by the minute. The first thing to say is there probably might, won't be a decision on this for another few weeks at least. There had been an expectation that all the jobs, the, the three or four top jobs, will be decided together. But now it looks like they will decide on, on Juncker, on the Commission President this week, and, and defer the decision on the others uh, for a few more weeks. Um, definitely the Danish Prime Minister, Helge Horning-Schmidt, is emerging as a favourite. She's a centre-left um, government leader. 
she is married to um, a son of the former British Labour leader Neil Kinnock, so she, she she's well well got uh, if you were uh, in in London. Um, the other person who'd emerged as a, as a potential candidate was is the Polish Prime Minister Sikorski. But of course, it's been very interesting what's happened there in the last few days, and he has become embroiled in um, a phone tapping scandal in Poland, and this could really, really damage his chances. Um, he's been a very high-profile person in Brussels in the last six months or so. Oxford educated, very much an anglophile. But um, his comments that were recorded, and in particular by David Cameron, um, may really damage his, his credibility, really. Suzanne Lynch, thank you. Unless something very unexpected happens, David Cameron will be isolated in Europe this week after picking a very public fight and losing it. So how did the British Prime Minister get himself into this spot? And how real is the threat to Britain's EU membership that his failure represents? To discuss this, I'm joined from London by our London editor, Mark Hennessy, and here in studio by Irish Times columnist Paul Gillespie. Mark, how did David Cameron get himself into such a mess? Well, it hadn't been part of the plan for Cameron to find himself now as the only man in the room standing up looking for a vote. In fact, the plan had been that he would lead the vanguard of the righteous and that when he stood up to complain about Juncker that there would be others who would be standing alongside him. And effectively, the British uh, miscalculated. They certainly miscalculated in terms of Angela Merkel. They believed, not without reason, that she didn't want a Juncker in the job, but they equally then moved on from there to believe that she would do something to stop him getting it. And they ended up in a situation by a succession of small steps. They eventually ended up so far uh, out on the plank uh, that they've been unable to walk themselves back in. And do you think he's right to push for a vote from the point of view of his political situation at home? Well, you could argue at this point that by pushing for a vote, at least as a certain degree of theatre, you know, uh, Dunkirk spirit and all that sort of nonsense, uh, that that he at least can say, I stood by my principles and, and all of the rest of it. But, you know, everybody knows this is not the way the European Union works. It's the idea of somebody calling a vote in a situation like this makes everybody else in the room uh, crawl with embarrassment. And he isn't going to, to win many friends. And we've seen the, the, the stuff coming from... Uh, Warsaw, where the uh, Polish foreign minister has been expressing some fairly colourful remarks privately about uh, his relationship uh, with Cameron and and his view of the way in which Cameron has been playing it. Uh, So he's now in a position where he he cannot resile from, so he has uh, effectively no choice but to go forward. Now, uh, this morning in uh, number 10, talking to the the people around Cameron, uh, there were overnight uh, references to the Luxembourg Compromise, this old rule in Brussels, whereby states can veto things uh, that are of vital national interest. And no matter how many times the question was put to Cameron's spokesman, he refused to rule that out as being a potential option. Now, nobody thinks that there is actually any practical way in which the Luxembourg Compromise can be used in a job, in an issue like Juncker and the appointment of a job has always been used when it has been used in terms of vital national interests on issues of common agricultural policy or whatever else. But the very fact that they're not ruling it out uh, is indicative of efforts that are still going on, uh, somewhat flaying efforts uh, still going on in number 10 to try and find a way in which they can block this. Paul Gillespie, does that sound to you to be plausible, the, uh, the notion of even floating this Luxembourg compromise as a, as a route to vetoing an appointment like this? Well, it, it, it's a council of desperation at this stage because I think, as Mark said, uh, it's been used in very different settings and it would look... 
here as a, an ultimate act of unilateralism uh, inappropriately. Um, uh, in, in this context, I think the ju political judgment involved in the British policy has to be questioned very, very closely as... Uh, as the Poles have done, as others have done, uh, they thought they would be able to sway uh, Angela Merkel towards their view, and they haven't been. Uh, she had to take account of her domestic uh, opinion and her uh, coalition allies uh, and the uh, strikingly different way in which the issue of Juncker uh, as the candidate, the lead candidate, was reported in Germany compared to Britain. There's been a very interesting political science research on this. Uh, the, the Spitzenkandidaten, the so-called lead candidate process, was only mentioned three or four times in, in British media, uh, if I'm correct, uh, before the actual vote. Uh, it was mentioned two or three thousand times in German media. Uh, it just It's yeah. a kind of empirical... Uh, um, um, a confirmation of the different political cultures involved. And I wonder if one of the reasons why David Cameron and his uh, advisers have got this one so much so badly wrong, as they've got other things wrong in the past, is actually that they they read English language media that they actually are they appear to be less familiar with what's going on and are the commentary that's going on about European matters elsewhere. I think that's true. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the same can apply here, but we have different interests, so therefore we're forced, in a sense, to look at other perspectives, uh, and that's a pluralism of approach which is much more effective than the rather cocooned British uh, approach and it, increasingly cocooned, and that's surprising given their diplomatic expertise and history. Do you? Uh, what do you think about? about that, uh, Mark, do you feel that there is a certain isolation from the intellectual current in the rest of Europe? Yes. Well, it's not a very intellectual uh, downing street at this moment in time. I mean, Cameron is a very bright individual, but he is not somebody who is interested in ideas and the discussion of political ideas in the way that perhaps one or two uh, previous occupants might have been. He, he's, he's a much more uh, chairman-like um, uh, presence. Uh, William Hague uh, certainly has become more Europhile uh, since he has taken over in uh, the Foreign Office, there's no doubt about that, and certainly people who would have been very complimentary of his Eurosceptic uh, leanings in the past are now less complimentary because they see him as having been uh, brought on board by the Brussels gang, uh, as they put it. Uh, but Paul's point about the, the way in which Juncker is seen as being a legitimate candidate in other parts of, of Europe uh, is, is quite right. There is absolutely no legitimacy uh, vested in Juncker in Britain. And uh, they have now created a bogeyman for elements of the British uh, tabloid press, particularly, uh, that will be uh, potentially quite significant uh, and quite dangerous over the next couple of years. I mean, we've already heard one or two examples where uh, senior people, in, allegedly Cameron in one case, but others in other cases, uh, hinting that uh, the selection of Juncker in a situation like this will be seriously damaging and could impact upon the uh, referendum that will take place in 2017 if Cameron is in government. And, and that, is, uh, uh, that, that is incredibly significant from the point of view of Irish interests. And the danger is that by a succession of missteps, not because of any great single 
uh, uh, empire-like move, but by a succession of small mistakes and small steps that were increasingly edging towards a position that none of us want to be in. Paul Gresby? I, I agree. I, I think this is an incremental process, but it has momentum uh, that anyone, any journalist or any analyst looking at this, you must look at the, the momentum behind it as well as at the incremental steps. They're very significant, but there is a, a shift of mood and perhaps something almost inexorable that, that is going through, that has been gone through in this uh, that uh, certainly directly affects Irish interests because Irish interests have been always that uh, we're better off with Britain in the EU for bilateral reasons as well as multilateral reasons. And to watch this unfolding is, is a really, you know, is quite worrying. And let's explore that a little bit more, Paul, mm. because at the moment, as you say, Ireland's interest lies in keeping Britain within the European Union. But where does Ireland's interest lie in the current dispute? I think Ireland's interest lies in going with the um, uh, in going with the lead candidate uh, process. Uh, we, you know, we were politically directly associated with that with it, in that the meeting was held uh, of Enda Kenny's uh, group in Dublin. He, he can't but go with it. Uh, Juncker is not a, an ideal candidate, but he's, uh, he has he has greater legitimacy in that setting, and I think also the the, the Irish political elite ag- understands the need to politicise uh, this process in the sense of making policy, political policy, more in line with voter preferences, which is a, uh, and that's a big shift. It's something the British don't seem to accept. Uh, um, and I think that's a good thing. If you're going to deepen the system in order to, to shore up the euro, you need to create this new kind of legitimacy. This is early days in that process, but I think it's a good process. Finally, Paul Gillespie, are we going to see more disputes like this one between those who are in the inner core of the European Union and those who are on the periphery? Yes, I presume we are. Uh, And it should be said that uh, Britain is entitled to uh, clarify the relationship between the ins and the outs, Britain and whoever else remains out. Uh, over the next, you know, medium term, it's. Uh, I think. I think myself that that requires treaty change in the medium term. We may be talking about four or five years. Politically, it's difficult before that. Uh, but in the in as the steps are taken, uh, uh, even assuming there isn't another financial crisis or economic crisis uh, that requires that crisis response, as the steps are taken uh, to shore up this system, uh, there are going to be uh, such difficulties, of course. Paul Gillespie and Mark Hennessy, thank you. The Sunni insurgency in Iraq has made fresh gains this week, taking control of the entire site of the country's biggest oil refinery, despite the efforts of the better trained and better equipped forces of the Iraqi army. The American Secretary of State John Kerry has been in Iraq this week for political talks and Washington has kept open the possibility of some air support for the Iraqi forces. But President Barack Obama has ruled out any return of US combat troops to Iraq and made clear that Americans don't want to get involved in any more military adventures in the Middle East. So where does the crisis in Iraq leave U.S. foreign policy? I'm joined from Washington by our Washington correspondent, Simon Carswell, and Paul Gillespie is still here with me in studio. Simon, just how far is Barack Obama prepared to go in offering military support to Iraq? Well, it's not quite clear how far he's willing to go. He's certainly taking a baby steps approach or a slow walk approach to possible military action um, against Iraq, these radical Islamic militants who are advancing in Iraq. And it's really reminiscent of what we saw last year with Syria, that will-he-won't-he approach when it came to airstrikes 
against Assad forces over chemical weapons use. So the big difference this year with Iraq is that Obama hasn't set a red line and he hasn't um, put himself in a corner on that with Iraq. But he does have congressional approval um, from before the Iraq war. So while he has said he will consult with Congress, um, he doesn't need a congressional approval or to put it to a vote to act because that approval from before the Iraq war has not expired. And that go slow approach on Iraq is he's sending 300 military advisors or special forces to help the Iraqis uh, coordinate um, the, uh, t- the, to try and halt the, def- uh, the advance of ISIS um, from the north. And he's also directed the U.S. military to build up capabilities in the area. He sent an aircraft carrier and, carrier and two small ships, which are carrying cruise missiles. So he's preparing the ground for a potential strike, but he wants to make clear that he has the intelligence needed to make um, effective strikes if they were to come. And as you say, he sent uh, John Kerry, his Secretary of State, to the area to exert some diplomatic pressure. So he's, he's, he's kind of fighting on a couple of fronts before actually making the decision and, to take military action. And Simon, is this cautious approach in step with American public opinion and with the opinion of Congress? Well, it is. I mean, public opinion uh, right now is very much against any, uh, any further military conflict undertaken by the U.S., there is a war fatigue in the U.S. Um, there's an opinion poll out today, New York Times and CBS, saying that uh, they, 58% of Americans disapprove of the way Obama is handling foreign policy, which is a big jump on a month, and it's the highest level of disapproval since he took office. But also, interestingly, there's a small majority supporting what he is doing in Iraq um, by sending in these military advisors and saying he is not willing to send combat troops back to Iraq. So I think his his approach to Iraq is um, really responding quite well to how Americans feel about what they should be doing in Iraq, while generally Americans are very unhappy with what he is doing more broadly in his foreign policy strategy. Now, Washington has been briefing pretty heavily against the Iraqi Prime Minister, Nouri al-Maliki. Do the Americans want to get rid of him? Well, it depends who you talk to. Privately, yes. Uh, publicly, no. Um, they have the White House and the senior administration officials have been hinting that, yes, they'd like to see Maliki gone. Uh, they believe he's a divisive force uh, in Iraq. They believe that he's not bringing the Sunni uh, minority into the fold, both at a local and national level. Yet uh, last week we had Obama saying publicly that, you know, they do, America does not decide who should run countries and it's up to the Iraqi people. But he is hinting very strongly that he's unhappy with what Maliki is doing in Iraq and that he's making political um, action conditional on any kind of military intervention. So he's saying military attacks and military airstrikes alone will not solve Iraq. Uh, And really there needs to be some political solution as well. Uh, Paul uh, Gillespie, what does Barack Obama's response to this crisis tell us about his foreign policy more generally? Yes, he's been surprisingly realist in his foreign policy. uh, it, it took a while for him to, to work this out, uh, and it's, but it's very deliberate uh, in the sense that he he's a quite narrowly defined uh, definition of U.S. essential interests in, in keeping with the kind of realist approach, very much against intervention, uh, particularly, as he said, recently stupid, idiotic interventions. Um, the big shift, remember, was towards Asia. This was announced with fanfare uh, two or three years after you know he came to office. Uh, it was overseen with by Hillary Clinton and others. Uh, he was cutting military expenditure. Very glad to have the perspective of getting out of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, precisely this part of the world. Uh, his delivery on that 
so-called repivot uh, has been incomplete, I think. Uh, but remember the fundamental interests involved, economic and otherwise, with, with, with Asia, uh, which has consequences, of course, also for Europe. But he's been drawn back towards uh, the, middle, the Middle East and the crisis there, uh, un, in a sense, unwillingly. And I think a good lot, in, in addition to his philosophical realism, there's a caution about getting re-entangled and getting re-involved. Now, the United States and Iran find themselves on the same side in this particular conflict, at least in the fight against Sunni extremists. And they're talking, at least, about cooperation. How far can that, can that go? I think it can go a long way if he has the courage to do it. But I wonder, does he? Uh, I think it would. Uh, it it could transform uh, the regional setting. Uh, uh, if they can handle the nuclear issue uh, effectively, uh, they then find themselves surprisingly on the same side in in in, in very many respects. Uh, an unraveling of Iraq, uh, as as now is becoming you know possible, quite possible, uh, is in, arguably in neither of their interests, particularly following the whole Syria impasse. Uh, uh, now the management of of the reintegration of Iraq or the management of changes is required, and you could say in big geopolitical terms and in realist terms as well, in keeping with his approach. But can he summon the political will to do that in the last two years of his presidency? It's a very interesting and big question. And Simon, obviously public opinion is going to make a big difference to uh, the answer to Paul's question. Where does public opinion stand on this cuddling up to Tehran that we've been seeing, seeing some of in the last few months? Well, in that poll that I mentioned, the New York Times-CBS poll, a little over half of Americans are saying they favor the idea of working with Iran in some limited capacity to try and solve, resolve the situation in Iraq. I think it's a bit simplistic to assume that my enemy's enemy is my friend and that suddenly the common interest in Iraq may bring Tehran and Washington closer. I think on paper it looks neat. I think in practice it's much more complicated. I think there's four main reasons, really. The fact that Iran um, has had been arming Shiite militias and responsible for many U.S. Uh, troop deaths in Iraq in the latter stages of the eight-year war there. I think that's an issue. I also think that the objectives of Iran as a Shiite power may not align with those of the U.S. because I'm not sure that Tehran would want to change the status quo and they would shore up support for uh, Maliki's government in Iraq. I also think that the fact that the U.S. and Iran have supported different sides in Syria as well uh, could co- could pose problems. But I think really the, the, the main issue for the U.S. is that this could strain further the testy relations with Israel, and we've had uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu out giving public interviews in the last couple of days here in the U.S. saying the U.S. cannot work with Iran to stabilize Iraq, saying you'll just be replacing radical Shiites with radical Sunnis, and there's no point in either in strengthening one side or weakening the other. And I think that Iran is because of that being that existential crisis for Israel. I think that for the U.S. Any concerns that both Israel and the U.S. have about Iran developing a nuclear bomb, and I think what that would mean for the region, I think that trumps all concerns about what's happening in Iraq and Syria and the advance of radical Islamic militants. I think for that reason, the U.S. may consult with Iran, but I don't see the White House considering uh, going as far as uh, deep cooperation with Iran. They certainly have ruled out any military cooperation with, with Iran. Finally, Paul, in Syria and in Iraq, are we now seeing the start of a redrawing of the borders 
that were set by British and French colonialists in the region almost a century ago. Well, we are. Now, whether whether this ends up in, in a formal reordering and uh, a formal, uh, a new set of formal lines, I, I don't know. Uh, but if we look at Turkey, look at the Kurdish question there, look at the uh, Kurdish question in Syria and now in Iraq, they've got control of Mosul and other uh, other areas. That, that's something that's developing. Just look simply at the map of Iraq and you see that the Sunni uh, ethnic areas are, um, are quite distinct and becoming under control in the same way uh, as the as the Shia ones are, uh, and then look at the relationship between th- what's happening in Iraq and what's happening in Syria. So uh, this is where where it seems to me that the big choice of Obama faces is between let us say high politics and re remilitarization. And I, I mean I, I go along with what Simon is saying about the political difficulties that Obama faces, particularly facing a. Um, a Republican opposition that is inclined to go for re-intervention. The neocons are kind of ascendant once again. Uh, you'd have a polarization between Republicans perhaps looking for a military solution of some kind to this and Obama looking for a political one. I think the political one has more to be said for it. I'd say that European powers would say the same thing and many uh, regional powers in the Middle East. But that's up, up for decision. Paul Gillespie and Simon Carswell, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. And finally to Brazil, where we were told that the World Cup could be accompanied by massive street protests against the wastefulness and corruption that have accompanied the competition. They haven't materialised. Not only that, the country's president, Dilma Rousseff, has been endorsed by her ruling Workers' Party to run for re-election in October, putting an end to rumours that her predecessor, Lula, might be about to make a comeback. So where has it all gone right? I'm joined now from Rio de Janeiro by our Latin American correspondent, Tom Hennigan. Tom, where did those threatened protests go? Well, the protest movement had been in decline from its high point last June, and there were hopes amongst those opposed to the World Cup that the actual tournament itself would be able to re-energize people and get them back out onto the streets. But that hasn't happened, Um, and I think there's two crucial reasons why not. One is that people realized that the World Cup was going to happen, that there were going to be... um, tens or hundreds of thousands of visitors coming to the country and Brazilians being hospitable and also quite proud of their country wanted to you know, show that they were ready to join in the party, if you like. The other reason was that for the last couple of months, the protests have been um, increasingly organized and led by um, hard left groups and have had the presence of anarchists, small groups of anarchists, but they've made quite a, a lot of trouble at them, um, attacking bank branches, uh, smashing up car showrooms, that kind of thing, entering into confrontation with the police. And the protests last June, when the mass uh, um, demonstrations happened, were very peaceful. Little incidents of trouble around the edges, but by and large peaceful. When these um, groups of anarchists started um, taking part, I think a lot of people were alienated and they sort of said, look, I've got nothing to do with this. And so I think they're the two main reasons why, um, you know, that they haven't materialized. And as they become smaller and smaller, the protests, the governments, um, and that is the federal government and state governments have felt more confident in going in hard against the protesters and dispersing them as quickly as possible. Now, Dilma uh, is also feeling pretty confident now that she's been endorsed by her party to run again in October. Was that always a foregone conclusion? 
No, um, it wasn't. Uh, she was very high in the polls and considered very popular until the sudden explosion of, of discontent on the street last June. And since then, her poll numbers um, have fallen. She's recovered somewhat, but has never got back up to where she was. And the, the economy has stalled. A lot of the measures um, to revive it that the government has implemented have not worked. And there were grumblings uh, within her own workers' party that she was aloof, that she was isolated, that she didn't listen to anyone. And people were saying, look, you know, this is going to be a much harder election campaign than we think. We should bring back Lula. He's a guaranteed um, winner. And um, that debate was going on uh, within the halls of the PT party. But Lula himself has sort of studied the nerves and said, look, if we all pull together, keep our heads, get behind her, we've got another term. And that would be a fourth consecutive term if they do win, so it would be historic. Um, and he's managed to convince them. And so the, the, the Bring Back Lula campaign has been stopped by Lula himself. And in October, what kind of opposition is Dilma likely to face? There are two main candidates that she faces. One is um, kind of curiously a former member of her coalition, um, Eduardo Campos, who was the governor of Pernambuco State in the northeast. And his party, the, the Socialist Party, was part of Lula's alliance that has been governing Brazil um, now for over a decade. And his party had ministers in Dilma's government, but they pulled out at the beginning of the year. And his whole campaign is, look, we've made a lot of progress, but we need to do better. And I'm the man to do better, not Dilma. Um, but the main contender is going to be from the Social Democrats, the traditional rivals to the PT. He is a man called Ayesio Neves, who is a senator, but he made his name as the governor of Minas Gerais, which is the second most populous state in Brazil. He had a very successful eight years running that state, and he is hoping to use that as a platform to recapture power for the Social Democrats after 12 years of the PT. Uh, finally, Tom, Brazil is through to the final 16 in the World Cup. If they do badly later on, could that affect uh, Dilma's popularity or could it have any political manifestation at all? It's hard to say no, but history says no. <laughs> Brazilians are mad about football. Um, they're very um, engaged with the national team. Brazil's national team is very tied up with national identity, with the idea of national greatness. And so a, a failure in um, a World Cup that the country is hosting might have more ramifications. But historically, uh, presidents have um, not had successful election campaigns when Brazil have won World Cups, and when Brazil have been knocked out of tournaments, it hasn't proved any problem at all to, to re-election. I think the bigger risk for Dilma was if there had been chaos in the organization of the event, and there have been problems, but they've not been as bad as people have thought. The air network has been quite successful. Um, a lot of the fans, and I've been talking to fans at, at all the games, say that they're astounded at you know, the traffic in Brazilian cities and that they can't um, imagine you know, that the metro uh, lines would have been so full going to games. But that aside, there haven't been really any other major problems. And what that means is, is that Dim will be able to go, look, I'm a good manager. I organized a World Cup. It was a success. People are calling it the best World Cup ever. So, you know, what's the opposition saying that I'm, I'm not up to running the country? Uh, Tom Hennigan in Rio de Janeiro, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview from the Irish Times. You can find more about all our stories on irishtimes.com and contact us 
at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer JJ Vernon, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>